Thank you, Father in heaven, for watching over us uh, through this week. We thank you for hearing us as we've cried out to you and prayed for others. We thank you, Lord, for Fred Muse getting better and getting his strength back. We pray that you continue to recover. We pray, Lord, also for um, our homes and our residences, Lord, that you would continue to provide our safety and preserve and protect us. Thank you, Lord, for our time together in this class. We pray that you bless us in this class. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. We are... A lot of clips. Okay. We are. Can everybody see that? Keep asking that. So, why do you do that? That's the, been the series. Uh, we've covered worship, church government, complementarianism, who is John Calvin, um, catechisms, church membership. We're going to do catechisms today, and then church membership. And if everything goes well, we'll have the brunch on Easter Sunday morning. There'll be a brunch instead of class. So, you heard that announcement today. And then. Um, Wes and I are talking about uh, and planning something that somebody mentioned last week, maybe a short study on heresy. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Some of the, especially the early heresies and then how they actually play out and how you still run across them and stuff. But I think that would be fun to do. So our class, uh, the primary goal, the first goal is that those who are visiting a church, if they come to class, you know, that they would walk away saying these people really are trying to be faithful to Scripture and Jesus. And also for us to be able to pass on um, why we do the things that we do and, and show biblical reasons and so forth. So today, let's talk about catechisms. Let's talk about, because uh, inquiring minds want to know, let's talk about catechisms because it's something that we run across all the time. So what we're going to do today is uh, in the class is these four things. What is catechesis? And you'll understand why I'm using that phrase here in just a minute. What did, does catechesis look like? What is a catechism? And what catechisms do we use? And we'll probably get into it a little bit as to why. So let's talk about catechesis, okay? So I actually put this, this passage up here for us so that way you, because I wanted to emphasize one word and show it to you. But this is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, okay? And so you know how Luke begins this, because he's going to actually begin Acts very similarly. So he goes, he starts out, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And there's the Greek word, katechesis, katechesis, which is, comes from catechesis, okay? So catechesis, what you've been taught, what you've been instructed. So as you look at that introduction to the gospel according to Luke, what, do you, what are some things that you pick up and that you notice? Can you even see the words? Are they big enough? Yes. When you get the catechesis, yes. Uh-huh. Very good. What else do you notice? I mean, what do you just notice about the general overview of verses 1 through 4? Yes. Yeah. So establishing credibility. These are the things the eyewitnesses have said. You've heard this and, and so forth, right? What else? 
Yeah, that's very interesting. The orderly account, and Luke um, does do that quite well in both the gospel and in the, the book of Acts. You know, there's an there's a orderliness in the way he presents the things, okay? All right, so very good. So, so he's talking, he introduces it, and then he, he, he ends by saying all of what he's about to do has to do with what Theophilus was catechized in, or what he had received instruction in. And so, um, assuming that that means that Theophilus has a framework, right? That's what that seems to be, a framework. And that what, what's going to happen is that Luke is going to fill in that framework, or he's going to take the framework that uh, Theophilus already has, and he's going to build on it, buff it up, uh, beef it up with more and more detail. But that structure is there, and that fits in with his idea of an orderly account and so forth. So catechesis is the key word, and catechesis is used a few times in the New Testament. Catechetical instruction is substantive instruction that normally has a plan. It's a substantive instruction that normally has a plan. So look at Acts. Here's Acts 18, verse 25. This is Apollos. Anybody remember Apollos? He was, um, um, well, here it is. He had been instructed. There's that Greek word, catechesis. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. His instruction, his catechesis, had not been thorough because he only knew the baptism of John, but it had been substantial. And so he takes that catechesis, that instruction, and he, be, and he works from that framework, that orderly framework, and is able to accurately teach the things concerning Jesus. Okay? You see the connection with catechesis? Okay. And you can ask questions, by the way, as you go along. Clarifications. Uh, many times it's a pattern of instruction set in some form to make it memorable a series of details intended to retain, be retained in order. That, by the way, is as you read the synoptic gospels, you'll notice a pattern in all three of them. They often link together episodes. So my favorite, like in Matthew and Mark chapter, the end of chapter four and the first part of chapter five is the stormy sea, the end of chapter four, and then the stormy soul, the man who was possessed by legion, and the same things are brought up Mark points out both of those so that you remember both scenes together. Okay, all the way through the Gospels, there's an intentionality. It's all historical, but there's an intentionality in the way that it's addressed so that you start linking things together because as you hear it over time, you remember. That's the point. You recall what was actually, what went with this episode, what happened in Jesus' life here and then what went with it before or maybe after. So it's intentional, it's very structured, and you'll see that in all of the synoptic Gospels, but you'll see it in other places as well. All right, so let's look at some passages. Let's look at Colossians. Here's some uh, examples of catechesis. Uh, so Colossians chapter 1. Everybody go to Colossians 1. I'm going to pick up at, um, I'm going to actually read verse 13 and 14, and then we're going to pick up at verse 15. So, talking about Christ, he was delivered, he has, uh, um, I'm sorry, about the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's kind of the, 
the paradigm that he's got set up. And now then, starting at verse 15, Paul begins rehearsing what looks like in the Greek and it looks like in the way that it's the way the rhythm is set up. It looks like this was something memorized. It's uh, in some ways it's creedal, but in other ways it's actually also intended to carry on and teach as a catechetical aspect to it. So here it is. Talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23, really is unpacking verses 13 and and 14, what Paul means by that statement, okay? So as you look at chapter 1, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, what are some things you notice? Do you see a structure? Hopefully somebody says yes. Yes, thank you. Moose. All right, there is a structure there. I just thought about this. Give you a little sight. So here's a structure to look for. Uh, Geography or location. Where's the location mentioned when you get to verse, um, verse 16? Yes, okay, verse 16. Heaven and earth. And if you look at the first part of those verses, it's talking about God and about the Son of God from all eternity. He is before all things. He was created before all. All things exist for Him and so forth. So the heaven and earth. And yet He became human, right? Do you see the heaven and earth? All right, where's the location then when you get down to um, the reconciling part in verse 20? Huh? No. Earth and heaven. Do you hear the difference? The reconciliation happens on earth that reconciles us with the Father. And so the backward, the back going back in the location. So you can tell this is a very, very well thought out, very structured statement, right? So that you're the first part you realize, okay, heaven and earth. And then when you come to the reconciliation, he's the firstborn, uh, he, he, uh, through his, the body of his flesh, he reconciled us to the Father, and thus restored earth and heaven. Right? You see this structure going one direction and then the other. It's meant to be memorable, so that if you're stumbling along trying to remember it, you remember heaven, earth, earth, heaven. Oh, I got it! And then you can start filling it in. Does that make sense? All right, what other structure do you see? 
what happens in the first part leading up to um, verse 17. So verse 15 through 17. Yes, from invisible to visible. What else? We're in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. What else do you notice? Okay. Creation. All kinds of stuff about creation and how He is the firstborn of all things and all things through Him all things came into being and existed for Him. All things existed, right? So there's the eternal Son of God. And then, starting at verse uh, 18, through roughly through 20, but then it moves on uh, to application, verses 21 and following. But what, what's, what do you see going on in verses 18 through 20? Nothing. Yes. Preeminent. You act. Huh? I'm sorry. Firstborn from the dead, the resurrection. You actually have a, a formalized or stylized uh, shorthand version of the gospel, which will fit when you get down to verse 21 and following. He talks about don't move from this gospel. Right? You have Christ's death, you have his resurrection, you have his ascension. Oh, there it is. Boom, 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 right? And the reconciliation that comes from all that, right? So it's very stylized. It's very intentional the way it's set up so that way you can pick this up and carry it with you in your back pocket, your shirt pocket, whatever. You can carry it with you wherever you go. That's what it was intended for. It's catechetical instruction, right? So it's form. It's got a form to it and it's got substance to it. And it's meant to be remembered. Okay? Anybody have any questions about Colossians 1? I'm just giving you some background to some of this here. All right, go to Philippians chapter 2. This should be pretty easy. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It's the same kind of thing, the way the rhythm is in the Greek and the way it's set up uh, in the Greek New Testament, it sounds like this was already in place. This, this language starting in verse 6 especially was already in place and being used in kind of a, a creedal aspect, what we believe, but it's also therefore it's catechetical. And so notice how Paul does this starting at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of, no, of nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, therefore my beloved, etc. And he goes from there. So when you look at Philippians 2, what's the structure? Okay, so beginning at verse uh, 6, where does verse 6 start us out? Yes, God's own being, right? So eternity, 
God's own essence, so outside of creation, who God is, so starting there, uh, and that the Son, the eternal Son, who was equal with the Father, uh, did not consider it something to be flaunted about, to be, to be, um, to be uh, taunting humans with, and so forth. But instead, what did he do? Now notice the structure. The structure should be very simple. What's the structure now? What does he do? I'm sorry? Yes, the incarnation. Kate's on the form of a bond servant, right? Humbles himself, which is Paul's point, um, where he's going with some of this in, the, in this passage. He humbles himself. Humbles himself to what point? Death on the cross. And then what happens? He's exalted. Okay, the implication is, he doesn't just come right out and say resurrection, but the implication is the resurrection. Okay, and then the ascension. And then, the result of that, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is Lord. Or, as I like to tell my Jehovah's Witness friends, He's Jehovah Jesus. Right? That makes their day. Alright? So notice the structure. The structure is meant, the way it's set up, it is meant for you to be able to take it, put it in your shirt pocket, put it in your back pocket, carry it with you wherever you go, and take it with you. Okay? You've been catechized. It's catechesis. It's a structure that's intended, that's filled with substance. And notice it's gospel substance specifically here, again. But that's what it's for, okay? All right. One more. Boing, boing. I love it when John's phone goes off. And, and it's the spring. I see, I see, you remember, remember, um, um, who was it? Uh, Flubber, the professor, the... Yes, yes, and he has flubber, and he's boing, boing, boing. Yes, yes, sorry. That's what I think of as soon as John's phone goes off. I'm waiting to see John start doing that. All right. <laughs> Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. And I'm going to ask somebody to read verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Who'll read that? Okay. Aaron. Very good. So, the, the idea that the church is the household of God and is the, uh, and is the pillar and buttress of the truth, something that's extremely important to us then. And so well, then Paul goes on and says, great indeed we confess, that's interesting language, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then there's this stylized shorthand form. Now, it's not quite as formalized as you got in Philippians and Colossians, okay? But... There's, a, there's an aspect of it that's very formal or styled for a specific purpose. So what do you have there when you look at verse 16? A short creed, yes, very good, right? So another creed again, or a creedal statement, right? What else? What do you have in there? Did I hear you, Vaughn? Did you say something? No. Okay. Yeah, incarnation, resurrection, um... Ascension, right, it's really interesting how short that is, and you, you're, you're, you're basically laying out a gospel structure there, okay, the gospel itself, 
in a nutshell. Anyways, all that just as a sample so that you see there was intentionality in the way things were done, especially in a society that was not a reading society, right? Most people are illiterate and don't know how to read in, uh, in Greece and in Rome and all of that. And so you've got to hand, hand on things for people to take with them so that when they're out harvesting in the field or they're out building, making tents or, or crushing grapes for their wine or whatever, they're remembering. They have something they can carry with them that is of substance and has some structure to it. So they, that's who they are and that's what they believe. Does that make sense? So that's catechesis in a nutshell. There's more you could probably say. So any questions up to this point? Okay. And so, uh, moving beyond the scriptures on into church history, catechesis followed a simple scope and sequence all the way through the early part of church history, the first several hundred years, even on into the Reformation, actually, and beyond. Catechesis, the actual stylized instruction with substance that was passed on to kids and passed on to adults followed a certain pattern and it usually included, almost always included the Apostles' Creed or its equivalent. Early in the first century you don't have the Apostles' Creed just yet but you have forms of it. Irenaeus later on in in, uh, the second century brings it up and uh, uh, and some others do as well. But you have either the Apostles' Creed or its equivalent so that way you have Everything in there from creation to incarnation to death, burial, resurrection, ascension, coming again to judge. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the church. You have this structure, the Apostles' Creed. You have the Ten Commandments usually being rehearsed and expounded as part of catechetical instruction. And you have the Lord's Prayer. Okay? Those are almost always, almost universally, the three pieces of catechetical instruction in the early church, okay? Anybody need any clarification or anything? Okay. So here's a, just a small example. This is from Irenaeus. I, Irenaeus is my buddy. He and I spent a lot of time together as I was writing my book on Gnosticism. He's so potent that modern-day Gnostics still talk about him and still get mad at him. So you know he's really powerful and potent, right? I love Irenaeus. Great guy. But anyways, here's uh, just something from one of uh, from Irenaeus' little book called On Apostolic Preaching. And you can kind of hear a catechetical um, format to this. So here's what he wrote. In fact, this is the book here. So it's a little teeny book. Okay, on apostolic preaching, which I do recommend reading. I think you would find it insightful. This then is the order of the rule of our faith. So already you've got a structure. That statement tells you there's structure there. You can't see this, can you? Because the whiteboard is behind. Oh, okay. This is the uh, this is the order of the rule of our faith and the foundation of the building and the stability of our conduct. God the Father, not made not material, invisible, one God, the creator of all things. This is the first point of our faith. The second point is the word of God, son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord, who was manifested to the prophets according to the form of their prophesying and according to the method of the dispensation of the Father, 
through whom all things were made, who also at the end of the times to complete and gather up all things was made man among men, visible and tangible, in order to abolish death and show forth life and procure a community of union between God and man. And the third point is, the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied and the fathers learned the things of God and the righteous were led forth into the way of righteousness and who in the end of the times was was poured out in a new way upon mankind and all the earth, renewing man unto God. This is just a little piece of Irenaeus's um, catechetical procedure that he's going to use, that he uses in this book. So what are some things that you notice as you, as you read through that? Yeah, almost like the Apostles' Creed, right? The Apostles' Creed was not a new thing. It was in the bloodstream. What else? What else do you notice? Is there a structure to it? Yes, there's a Trinitarian structure to it, just like you see in the Apostles' Creed. Okay? What else do you notice? For those of us who need lists, first, second, third, right? Okay? And then you hear the Gospel part of it, right? The Gospel's in there. There's more he's going to say. He's actually going to go on in the book and expand this throughout uh, that particular little book, okay? I just want you to get an example, just a feel. Early church catechesis was very substantive, very theological, and very gospel-centered. Okay? Any questions at all? Clarifications? Okay. So you see this format, remember the format, we'll talk about it again in a minute, but you see this format um, that's used with Cyril Jerusalem in the 3rd century, John Chrysostom is in the 3rd, 4th century, Martin Luther in the 16th century, the 1500s, John Calvin, Zacharias, Arsenius, and so forth. Um, Cyril Jerusalem's catechetical lectures, Luther's small catechism this is the first catechism i ever read when i was and i was in the church of christ so don't tell anybody because i would have been excommunicated immediately right that's the first catechism i ever read um and that's exactly what luther did through this little catechism for kids is he went through the apostles creed the ten commandments and the lord's prayer and in that then you can expand to other subjects like the sacraments and church and things like that which is what goes on in almost all the catechisms themselves um also, Calvin's instruction in faith, which is not the little golden book. This is uh, actually a precursor or uh, a synopsis of his 1536 version of the Institutes. But this was intended to be able to be carried around. Now you got printing presses so you can start carrying things around physically, right? And so um, that's what he does. He walks through there, the Ten Commandments and so forth. The Heidelberg Catechism... Right, if you pay attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, in fact, where are we at right now in the Heidelberg Catechism on Sunday morning? The Lord's Prayer. If you paid attention, we walked through uh, uh, we walked through the Ten Commandments or the Apostles' Creed. In fact, we're supposed to recite it as part of the Catechism, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. It's following an ancient format for catechesis. It's really, really helpful. Okay? And so you see this catechetical catechesis structure going for millennia and a half and longer 
in the early, from the early church to almost to the present. Which leads us then to talk about catechisms. I've already started talking about catechisms, but that leads us to talk about catechisms. So, any questions before we actually talk about catechisms specifically? No, okay. So what is a catechism? A catechism is a manual of religious instruction usually arranged in the form of questions and answers used to instruct the, the young to win converts and to testify to the faith. Okay? It's a, it's a very formalized set of instructions that's done in a question and answer format, right? So there's a question and then you respond with an answer. And it's intended for you to be able to take that with you, that question and answer with you. The questions sometimes, especially when you're raising kids, sometimes the kids ask questions and you go, well, didn't you learn about that particular question in your class? Well, didn't you all talk about the catechism, you know, this and that? Well, yeah, that's right, we did. And that's an aha moment. It's really great when you can pull the two together. So there's all kinds of catechism going on in Scripture. Um, we won't actually read some of these, but in Exodus 12, what's going on in Exodus 12 at the institution of, of uh, the Passover? Anybody remember? You can look it up if you want. Go ahead and look it up. That will help. Exodus 12. Verse 24 through 27. So, um, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, Why do you mean, what do you mean by this service? Notice how programmed this is. When your children ask this, then you will say, um, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Notice that there, there's a catechetical, but here the, it's actually the kids asking the parents questions, and here's the answer. Remember this answer. You have to give this answer. right? And it's going to be the same thing when you get to Exodus 13, verses 14 through 16 on a different subject. When the firstborn of the Israelite families are redeemed with a shekel, and then the kids will ask you, what do you mean by doing this? And then the answer is something along the lines of, because when, they ate, when uh, God brought the last judgment upon Egypt, He killed the firstborn, and so we redeemed the firstborn as a reminder of what God did there. Right. So it's that catechetical back and forth. Okay? The same goes on in Deuteronomy 6, in Joshua 4, when they come into the land, they begin to come into the land, it's the same structure. There's this question and answer. You have a catechism going on and being promoted by Yahweh Himself in the Scriptures. Okay? And I say that because sometimes people will say, well, catechisms are artificial, nobody does this, and, and you know, this is, this is like, this is just adding to the scriptures and so forth and it's all rote memory and so forth and you just go back well that's what God commanded yes
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's more catechizing that goes on, real catechism. And Isaiah 40 is where God is the catechist, and He's asking questions. So Isaiah 40, very quickly. And I'm going to ask you this. So as I read through this, did God intend the people to remember these, these questions and the answers? That's a question, okay? So chapter 40, Isaiah 40, starting at verse 12. God is speaking to Isaiah. Who has measured, who, there's the question, has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth and a measure and weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? There's a series of questions that have implied answers to them, right? And that you're supposed to remember the questions and the answers. And he goes on, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust and the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon will not, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. I mean, part of the catechesis is even a political statement in some sense, right? As you look at that statement there. Then number eight, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with Him? An idol! A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will, will not rot. He seeks out skillful craftsmen to set up an idol that will not move. I mean, so even the catechetical answer has some sarcasm to it, sorry, but, but that's the way God does that. That's how he feels about idolatry. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits upon the circle of the earth, and it just keeps on going. It's God is the catechist who's asking questions and giving us the answers and wanting us to remember the questions and the answers because that's how you, part of how you make it through a world filled with idolatry, filled with all kinds of idolatry. And so God uses catechetical approaches, okay? There you go. Any questions or anything at this point? Clarifications? I find it funny just historically that Plato and many of his works are their stories, but they're surrounded by one character all the way through asking questions and another answering. So it's just not just in the, inside the faith that we do this. I mean, that was what, why Plato wrote his stories the way he did, is so that way there'd be questions and answers, questions and answers, for you to remember both the question and the answer. Okay? We may not agree with this question or answer, but there it is. A little his history there. So, um, remember, the major cover, subjects that are covered have been covered for centuries in the catechism, whether explicitly or implicitly or what? What are the three major subjects? Yes, the Apostles' Creed or something of its equivalent, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so thinking about the catechisms we use... Um, you think about the Heidelberg Catechism. Has anybody, besides on Sunday morning, has anybody ever read through the Heidelberg Catechism? 
besides Wes and Caitlin. If you get a chance, you can get them. Somebody gave me this years ago, a little handy copy. I've got different versions because it was actually written in another language, and so there's some tra different translational uh, versions out there, okay? But if you take the time, and I would encourage you to do it, take the time to actually get you a copy. You can get it easy online. If you've got online access, you can just download it. There's a couple places that have it for free. In fact, all of the catechisms I'm going to point out, you can get for free online and just walk through it and go, what's the purpose of this catechism? Why is it doing what it's doing? And you'll notice the structure, especially in the Heidelberg Catechism, you'll notice the structure of the Apostles' Creed, the Decalogue, and the Lord's Prayer. It, it expands to that, but that's what it's dealing with. And think about the first question and answer, right? Which is the summarization of the whole catechism. But it's a great confession of faith, but it's also... When you're in the hospital and I come visit you, I'm going to probably refer to it. What's your only comfort in life and in death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood, you know, is fully satisfied for all my sins, delivering from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, need that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Wherefore? By His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life. It makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. What a great passage to remember! Right? That's what it's for! Alright? And then so as you go work through the Catechism, you'll notice in the Heidelberg it fills in those three. There's also, uh, when you get to uh, question 27 and 28, there's a great statement on providence. You know? It's a, it's a really good statement of providence. Good to have with you when you have hard times and when you're doing really, really well because it addresses both of those. It's a really good, good statement. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I mean, not a, like I love Anna, mind you. Okay, you know. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. Anybody ever read it? Yes. Oh, I see a hand. All right. Interesting enough, the Shorter Catechism doesn't actually bring out explicitly the Apostles' Creed, but it's the structure behind much of what's going on in the Shorter Catechism. So it doesn't say it, state it specifically. But what part of this, this, um, these subjects, what does it actually address specifically, explicitly? Ten Commandments? And what else? The Lord's Prayer, the end, the whole last end of the Catechism is on the Lord's Prayer. Okay? You see the structure and the format. What a way to hand something off to your kids, even for your own sake, just having working through it and being ref and just refreshing yourself with it every so often gives you some extra substance as you go on in life. But what a great thing to hand off to our kids. Right? Great. All right. There's also a more updated or a smaller version, if you will. So what's funny is that um, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Shorter Catechism were actually written for young kids. Uh, and adults struggle with both of these, at least in the 20th and 21st century. And so um, we came up with the children's first catechism. This is the one that uh, Great Commission Publication puts out. And there's a whole... Uh, curriculum for it that uh, we taught here a couple of times. The children's first catechism, much shorter answers, who made you, why did God make you, and so forth, right? 
Little short, pithy answers. Yeah, it's great. Same thing. It follows really the structure. It follows basically the shorter catechism. So it doesn't explicitly bring out the Apostles' Creed, though that's part of the structure of it. But it does specifically bring out the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Okay? It's a great little catechism. One more. The New City Catechism. This is, this is the fancy version of it, okay? You can actually download, like I said, all of these online for free. The New City Catechism was written recently in the last 15 years. That's not, if I'm not right, 10 years. Maybe the last 10 years. And so it's actually a, a, a crossway publication. Tim Keller had something to do with it, and another fellow had something to do with it. It actually takes out or leaves out the things that are particularly Presbyterian, a reference to baptism, things like that, the... The, the mode, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but we're getting ready to move into it Sunday mornings, okay? Uh, the, the upside of it is that it's actually set up in two different, in, in a way to go for two age groups. So like, here's the question and answer. So it, it highlights what's for the littlest kids, and then the big answer is for all of the rest of us big kids, okay? So the little answer is, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Boom. Short answer. But the big answer fills out. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world. He created rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the des uh, disintegration of all creation. Wow. It's a great answer. And that's how big it is. It's not a very big answer. What they did with this one is they only do one question a, a, a week. So there's 52 questions and answers. So it's meant to be one a week. So you can spend all week long working with your kids on it and working with yourself on it. And then by the end of a 52 weeks, by the end of a year, you have a basic structure. It's a very, it's a very simple structure, but it's a very basic structure. Um, and it does specifically bring up the Apostles' because it actually follows more the Heidelberg Catechism. So it does specifically bring out the Apostles' Creed that brings out the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and works on it. Yes? Um, they are products of the Reformation. Thank you for asking that. So the Heidelberg Catechism... Uh, was written uh, in the 1560s. I think that's right, 1560s, and Calvin was already dead, so he had already, uh, he was already gone, but this was Arsenius, um, I forgot his name already. Anyways, it was uh, one specific fellow within the Reformed tradition that did it. There is a difference when it comes to the sacraments, okay? Um, but I don't want to get lost in here on all that, but, but it's not off the reservation, as we might say, politically incorrectly, but... Yeah, yeah. So why have we moved? That's a great question. Why have we moved from catechesis and catechisms? Part of it is because of folk religion. We're populist people. It's primarily in, in the West, and especially in America, we want the simplest version of the faith possible, which is just simply, do you believe Jesus is Lord? Yes. Okay, that's all you need to know. Yeah. So, so, so what's funny is that the Reformation, yeah, the Reformation began... Being in catechisms in the Catholic Church, 
would never give street credit, but turned around and went, oh, you know what? We need to do that same thing. And then they started writing catechisms as well. You know? and so that's why you have uh, uh, the Baltimore Catechism from the uh, early 1900s, and you have the, the new catechism for the Catholic Church following that form. But theirs is not meant to be memorized. If you look at the big Catholic catechism that um, Ratzinger helped put together, who became Benedict XVI, it's huge. It's like this big. It's more of a, it's more of a theological tome instead of next to your Burkhoff systematic theology. But then they might explode, but that's different. But I think to answer, Kelly, to answer your question, I think that that's the reason why we've moved away in the West, especially America, from catechism is because we're a populist people and we like the simplest thing possible. We don't want to think too hard about anything, right? And to think that Christian faith actually encompasses far more than just me and my Jesus is scandalous. And that's why um, if you start talking about catechism, you, you kind of see people's eyes glaze over or they start getting defensive. So, yeah. Yes. How do you feel about that, Mike? How do you feel about that, Mike? Yes. But that's a great question. And so, the, and the catechisms are actually geared toward being publicly used. I mean, they're meant to be read out loud. Especially when you think about it, in a, when they were written, when the early ones were written, in a society that wasn't as literate as we are, that would be pretty normal. Right? You want it read out loud, and everybody recites it out loud. Okay? And so it's very fitting that on Sunday morning... We actually work through, it takes us about five years to work through these four, these four catechisms. Let me go back to them real quick. These four catechisms, we work through them. Uh, it takes us about five years to just cycle through them, maybe a little bit longer. Okay? But we do that for a reason, uh, because it's meant to be read out loud. I love the fact that every so often... Uh, one of the catechism questions and answers will say something that's very, very uncomfortable for some people who happen to visit the church that day. And I go, okay, Lord, was that providence or was that just coincidence? You know, I mean, it's just, it's an interesting because it actually has us, pushes us to deal with some of those things that are not real popular. And so for us to publicly uh, recite them under our improving our faith, Okay, we don't say them as a creedal statement, but we, we have them in our liturgy as uh, improving our faith, which is a very fitting thing to do. Any, any other questions? All right, so for review, why would this way of instruction be beneficial? Because the learning...
Right, and it may be that they don't think about it while they're reciting it, like they're in an official instruction, but it's in there. And at some point, they do end up thinking about it. Why did I just say that? What is that all about? You know? And so, I think about like the Heidelberg Catechism, number one. I mean, it's driving around sometimes. This is distracted driving, don't do this. I'll be thinking about the Heidelberg Catechism, that answer. Right? So I've got it with me to carry in my head to carry around and do that. So it really does, yeah. Yeah, so why, why, what would take to move us out of laziness? I mean, I just think that the, so part of it is the social environment. As a congregation, if this is expected that we're going to be part, doing this kind of thing, it sometimes shows, you know, shows up for seasons in our uh, kids' classes, and we encourage our kids. You know, sometimes when we're interviewing kids, we'll ask them a few catechism questions just to see how they're doing with it. But all that helps to support it. But then us taking the front seat and actually working on pick up one of the catechisms and actually begin to work on it ourselves. And then, um, and the value of that, being able then to tell someone or talk to, say, one of the, the kids or someone else to say, you know, this was in the catechism. When they're asking you a question, this was in the catechism, do you remember this? Uh, no. Well, let me tell you what it says. And then you're, you're just showing the emphasis there. But I think that part of it's just our normal social environment as a church will, will help. It is. Yes. 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 So having that, having this in your head does give you some sense of um, awareness when somebody's coming from a different angle. So my father-in-law years ago. So I was in the Church of Christ, and we hated all creeds except you know no creed but Christ. Wait. Anyways, and so, um, but he was Lutheran, and his kids, uh, Anna's half-brother and sister from him and his side of the family were Lutheran, and they were going through um, confirmation. And so they had to memorize the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and all that stuff. And he said to me one day, he said, you know the value of this Apostles' Creed thing? And I'm sitting there thinking, there's no value, it's of the devil, right? That's what I was thinking. He goes, because when the Jehovah's Witnesses come up or somebody else comes up and starts saying something, they stop and they go, wait, that doesn't sound right. Good guardrail, right? It's a good guardrail. Yeah, right, Mike. Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, right, very good. So yes, that's a good analogy. And so I've already mentioned this. So why do we use these four catechisms so that we can rehearse them within our own context and encourage one another and encourage kids with these things, okay? Um, so how does this help you as an, as an adult or as grandparents or as a parent? Having the catechisms and knowing some of the background and maybe using them, how does it help you?
Yes, it's right. Yes. Some of us know we're more childish than others. But you're right. That's exactly right. We haven't graduated from that. That's good. How else? Yes. Yes. Provide structure in an increasingly unstructured world and environment. Very good. Lots of things we could put in there. Um, One last one, I think. Describe the way this can be of an advantage for the... Already talked about that. Uh, Basically, we talked about how this can be an advantage for the children. So give examples of of ways that catechesis can be evangelistic. That's one of the emphases for catechism, is that it's actually to win converts. How can it be evangelistic? Yeah. So you go through the Ten Commandments in one of the catechisms, and you feel convicted, right? And then the answer is actually in the catechism. This is what God has done because we're all guilty. So you've already even got gospel in the catechism, right? Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Okay, so that's catechism. I'm sorry. So that's catechisms, why we use catechisms. Next week we'll talk about church membership, which is interesting because we're talking about the modern moment, there are more and more churches moving away from church membership, official church membership, and yet, as I pointed out the other day, there's actually some biblical uh, reasons why church membership is actually the legitimate way to go. Okay, and we'll talk about that next week. So, Any questions or anything, observations before we end? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God in heaven, for our forebears who thought so much about the faith that they they put it together in this catechetical way, in these catechisms. Help us not to to treat them as um, optional necessarily, not to treat them as discardable, but actually to grow from them. I pray for all of us that we would be encouraged to pick them up and begin to work through them ourselves and And as Caitlin mentioned, looking at the scripture proofs at the bottom and actually beginning to pull in deeper, more richly, this faith that you have given us. Thank you, again, as we've said, for those who put these together. We pray that you would bless us this day as we now enter into the great assembly. We pray that you would bless our improving our doctrine today for all those who came to the class today. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You would fill us with your joy and your peace that passes all understanding. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, rejoice in the goodness you've bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.